as Sam was mentioning before, um, we are just finishing our 12-session series on um, seeing with new eyes. And so for those of you who have been joining us uh, week after week, um, good job. <laughs> you are now done. Congratulations. And um, I know I can also breathe a kind of a sigh of relief where it's uh, – um, yeah, 12 sessions straight is, uh, feels a bit like a marathon, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really great, um, talking with you afterwards and getting feedback and hearing from you and just having that dialogue and exploring scripture together. And so it's been, it's been a tremendous blessing for me. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who are joining us online, we want to welcome you. And, um, of course, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we want to welcome you as well. Uh, we know there are a number of you who are traveling from interstate and even overseas, and so we're glad that you could join us. So today's topic is, uh, why are there so many churches? Why are there so many churches? And as we mentioned at the beginning of this series, we talked about the importance of as we explore each topic, it should add a lens of clarity. Just like when you go to the optometrist and he puts that big machine in front of you and uh, he asks you, um, do you like a uh, lens A or lens B better? And after a series of lenses, you can see clearly. And so the title of this series, Seeing With New Eyes, the purpose was to add a series of lenses so that we could see the Word of God clearly, that we could understand the character of God clearly. So today we'll be answering this age-old question. Did you know there are 1,100 different Christian churches here in Australia? 1,100. Why are there so many different Christian denominations if there is one Christian book? Where did they come from? How did they begin? And today, I'm not going to be able to cover the origins of every single Christian denomination, but I will introduce us to the major ones and talk about the beginnings of uh, Protestantism as we know it. And so, um, the information that I'll be giving to you today is very uh, introductory. It's supposed to build a platform so that you can go and search for yourself uh, later on. But I do want to delve into a bit of how uh, Christianity sort of began and how it uh, impacts us today. Because if we look at the past, we understand the present and it informs the future as well. So today, um, we're, going to st we're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about church history. And before we begin, I'm just going to invite you to join me for one more word of prayer. Father God, I just want to ask that um, over the next uh, 35, 40 minutes that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our minds, and as we see where the churches come from, um, I just pray that you would give us a deep sense of appreciation for the sacrifice that the sacrifices that have been made, uh, the hardships that have been made, and that you would inspire us to really um, cling to your word and to value your word and, and be informed by it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So in Acts chapter 2, we see the beginnings of the New Testament church. And in verse 46 and 47, it says, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the Christian church starts in Acts chapter 2. And as you work your way through the book of Acts, there are certain lines that are given where it kind of talks about church growth. So for example, in Acts chapter 2, it says that God added to the church daily. 
in Acts chapter 5, it says that multitudes joined the church. In Acts chapter 6, it says the disciples multiplied. And so we really get the sense of tremendous growth that's taking place in Christianity. But then there's this shift that happens, and the Bible says that persecution takes place. So if you go to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, we read that, On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So the Bible says that the church had growth, and then had persecution, and then there was expansion that took place. And so churches started spreading out in different places all throughout Asia Minor and even Europe. And this meant that the church would be filled with not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And inevitably what happened is that there was a diversity of culture, there was a diversity of people group, and what happened is that the church then had to be faced with the idea of organization. With all this diversity, how are we, how are we going to make sure that the church functions properly? And so what ends up happening is that each church has this basic structure. They elect these elders, and the elders basically run the different churches. And anytime there's a question, anytime there was conflict, anytime there was uncertainty of what should be done, the elders would send word, and they would travel back to Jerusalem, and they would have these meetings, and they would discuss uh, theological uh, challenges or even practical church challenges, and they would even talk about church finance. So here's one example of this happening. In Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So here's this issue. Some gentlemen come down to these new churches and they start teaching people, you have to get circumcised. And if you don't, you're not saved. God rejects you. Now you could imagine this would be quite problematic because every single day you have non-Jewish people entering into the church saying, hey, we would like to become Christian. And it's kind of like, yeah, you can join our religion, but there's just one condition, right? Like how terrible would that condition be? And so what was the church going to do? And what ends up happening is that they have this Jerusalem council and they start talking about what to do about this issue of circumcision. And as you read through Acts chapter 15, 16, 17, you find that the elders pray together and they come to this decision. You know what? Circumcision is just not a practical thing to place on people who are non-Jewish. And so um, they pray and they get this impression God is saying circumcision is no longer a requirement. Now, the reason why I bring this up is as you read through the New Testament, you get the impression that the church as a whole, it isn't really well organized. Travel is slow and difficult. Communication is even slower and even more difficult. And so what ends up happening is that these individual churches have a lot of autonomy. And what ends up happening is because there's autonomy, there's a lot of diversity of thought, theology, and there's basically... The churches are just very different depending on which area or which church you go to. And so even when you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, you really get a feeling that the churches 
really don't know the basic teachings of Christianity. And so Paul has to constantly correct people's understanding of the ideas of Jesus, the ideas of death and resurrection, uh, these different topics that are repeated throughout the New Testament. And so what ends up happening is because there's this challenge of, uh, of travel, of communication, and there's lots of autonomy, the church faces two big challenges that I'm going to highlight. The first challenge is coercion. In the first few centuries, or in the first century, the Roman Empire, specifically Emperor Nero, he mercilessly persecuted the Christians because they were so different. They wouldn't submit to um, Roman paganism, Roman religion, and he kind of thought they were a bit of uh, this rebellious group. And so he really hurt uh, the Christians. Like He would kill them, throw them into prison, he would torture them. And you might think that this would have ended the religion. If you knew my life is going to be at risk, maybe the things that I say, the things I believe aren't really worth it. But really the opposite happens. And as a result of heavy persecution, the Christian church grows. Here's the second challenge that Christianity faces, and it's counterfeit. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul spoke to the leaders of the churches and he told them, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. And so Paul kind of gets this vision of the future and he lays down this prophecy and says, beware of counterfeit teaching. Here's another verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you not to be soon shaken as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. So Paul gives this prophecy. He says, before the coming of Jesus, there will be deception. And so for the first two centuries, the church is having this autonomy. Uh, there are different people that go through those churches, and they kind of share their own ideas. Here, here are a number of the teachings that were kind of given uh, in the early days of Christianity. The first honorable mention is uh, Valentinus, and he really um, was a proponent of something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this mysterious knowledge that only the elite could really understand. And so um, when you read through, uh, especially the writings of John, you really get John battling these idea, uh, the, the beginning ideas of Gnosticism, where he's saying, listen, true knowledge comes from the word. And so there's a man named Valentinus, and Gnosticism became this well-known idea um, in the first centuries. Then you have someone called Marcion, and he really rejected the Old Testament God. He didn't like the idea that God in the Old Testament is judgmental. There are moments where uh, many people die because the Bible basically says God gets angry. And he really doesn't know how to reconcile this idea of judgment and the love of God. And so his response was, I just reject the Old Testament God. And so he went around teaching, we really should just be focusing on Jesus. Then there was a third person. His name was Montanus, and he really relied on the spontaneous movings of the Holy Spirit. And 
uh, one might say this is a very charismatic approach, but there's kind of a de-emphasis on the importance of the Word of God and a emphasis on the fact that God does supernatural things. And so people were kind of really looking for the supernatural occurrences of the Holy Spirit, but they weren't really paying attention to what the Word of God was actually saying. Then finally, I mentioned someone named Pelagius. And Pelagius really separated this idea of grace and works. And what he basically said was, listen, everybody has the ability to do right apart from the grace of God. Everybody has the ability to obey. And if you don't obey, then that's your bad. And so because he separated the importance of relying on God, there really was a lot of uh, confusion in terms of how Christian growth takes place. And so these are the four of the more well-known um, uh, false teachers that were really kind of spreading throughout the first uh, first couple centuries of, uh, of church history. And so a lot of different theologians came up as a result of what these four individuals did. And the response to heresy is organization. And so the church decides, the church leaders gather together and they decide, let's meet together regularly. And what ended up happening is that the church started having something called councils. And if you look through church history, you'll find something called the Council of Nicaea. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll have these series of councils where the leaders regularly come together and they work through church issues, they work through doctrine, and it's the first time where the church has a unification of church um, teaching. Now, one might think, great, organization is good. Um, and, and what they ended up calling themselves was the great church. And uh, this happens in the second, um, the second century or the second and third century. One might think, great, this is, this is good. We're becoming unified. We're becoming more powerful. We're becoming more uh, organized. But what ends up happening is that as there's this newfound unity, it turns into an issue of control. Because if you can control the councils, you can control one of the most significant religions in the world. And what ended up happening is that Christianity became an influential power and religion started mingling with politics. And so enter this famous individual. His name was Constantine. Constantine becomes emperor in the Roman Empire and in the early, in the early part of the 4th century. And he really wants to unify the empire. And the question is, how is he going to do this? And he thinks to himself, what's the most significant organized group in my empire and he realizes it's christianity and if i can align myself with christianity maybe i can control maybe i can have a better control of my empire and so constantine aligns himself with christianity and he gets baptized and from the church's perspective, this was a great opportunity because this is one of the first times where christians can finally say we no longer have to worry about persecution. I don't have to fear for my life. And not only was there this release of freedom from fear, but there was incentive. Uh, uh, Christianity became incentivized where there were tax breaks given to Christians. How great would that be? You file in your tax form and you say, yes, I am a Christian. And then automatic, ex, uh, automatic uh, tax benefits. 
That's great. And so what ended up happening is that people started uh, identifying themselves as Christians. And what started happening is the churches started getting filled with influential, powerful people. And so when the churches started getting filled with influential, powerful people, well, where do you go to then rub shoulders with the social elite? Well, you go to church. And so the churches started getting filled with people because um, that was the place to go. That's where, the, that's where all the important people went. So this brought this huge wave of prosperity to the church. It brought massive influence to the church, but it also changed the church. Now here's a coin um, from Constantine's, uh, from the era that where Constantine was a ruler. And what you see here is that you've got Constantine uh, on the coin, and then imposed in that coin is the sun god. And what we find in that time period is that there were a lot of Roman pagans. And so how is the church going to be relevant to the pagans? Well, we would then change the church to make church a more uh, of a relevant place or a happy place for pagans to be able to come into. And so how is Constantine going to convince his empire to join him on his Christian journey? Well, change Christianity. And so the church began to celebrate pagan holidays. So, for example, Easter. And I don't know if you've ever thought this, but have you ever wondered what uh, the resurrection of Jesus has to do with bunnies? It's kind of like we, we celebrate Easter and then we also celebrate bunnies. And it's kind of like, what's the connection there? Or what do bunnies have to do with eggs? Because do bunnies lay eggs? And I don't know if there are biologists out there, but bunnies don't lay eggs. And so what's the connection? And what we see here is... In Easter, you've got a blend of Christianity, the idea that Jesus is resurrected, and then you have all these pagan fertility symbols because bunnies are very fertile and eggs are symbols of fertility. And so Christianity really started blending these two things. Uh, same with Christmas. Has, any, has anyone ever wondered, what does the birth of Jesus have to do with um, decorated ornamental trees? There's no connection at all. But when you look through paganism, um, decorated trees becomes a normal thing in paganism. And so once again, there's this blending of these different holidays. Now, I'm not saying don't celebrate Christmas and Easter. They're evil holidays. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. I think they're really, really great opportunities, uh, especially in society today where it's normal to be able to say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. So these are actually important holidays. But what I am saying is that the popularity and influence of the church changed because of uh, what was done in history. And so the church changed as a result of its power. So we move to 321 AD. And Constantine here in this year decrees Sunday as a Roman day of, what, of rest. So here's another coin with Constantine on the front and the sun god in the back. And I'm not sure if you're aware that the days of the week are named after uh, Roman, um, Roman and Greek, and um, there's a third culture, but they're all named after deity. And so Sunday actually means the day of the sun, and it's quite convenient because on Sunday, um, the majority of the Roman Empire worshipped, but it was also convenient that Jesus, the Son of God, was resurrected from the dead on the first day or on the Sunday. And so there was a lot of blending that took place of this uh, pagan day of the sun and then the worship of Christianity. 
there was also a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment at that point in time because the Jews were kind of this isolated people group that were uh, very separatist, but they were also very militant. And so anytime something happened between the Jews and the Roman Empire, they tended to rebel and wars would break out and people would die. And so Christianity was faced with this dilemma. Hey, there's a lot of overlap between what we believe and what the Jews believe. And it'd be nice if there was some separation. And so if we could even just change the day of worship from um, Saturday, which is the biblical Sabbath, to Sunday, which is a day of uh, where the pagans can join us, we would separate ourselves from the Jews, which we don't like, and then we can join ourselves with the pagans, which we do like. And so there was a shift that took place. If you look at the Ten Commandments, we also start see, we also we also start seeing this shift of commandment keeping or the way that the commandments were implemented in the church. And what I want to highlight here is the blue is the biblical 10 commandments and then the red are the edited commandments that the universal church or the great church adopted. Notice here in the fourth commandment it says Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. It names uh, the day in which worship is supposed to take place. But if you go back over to uh, the fourth commandment here in the edited version of the commandments, it says, honor your father and your mother, which is odd because it's a complete different commandment. But if you look at the third commandment, notice it says, remember to keep holy the Lord's day. So what's happening here is the church responds by replacing the Sabbath with something called the Lord's Day. They kind of um, make it a bit more vague as, as to which day of worship actually takes place. And then the numbering changes. And the question is, why does the numbering change? Why isn't the fourth commandment the fourth commandment in both copies? But notice here, if you go to the second commandment, the second commandment in the Bible uh, says, you shall not make yourselves a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. In other words, don't um, practice idolatry. Don't make any images and then worship those images. But if you look here, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your uh, God in vain, which is the third commandment here. And so what ends up happening is they just kind of wipe out that commandment of idolatry. And the reason why is because they're trying to reach pagan idolaters so if you then tell everyone give up your statues they're not going to join your church and so uh they kind of implement this um idolatry that takes place and so if you go to saint peter's cathedral in rome what you'll find is there's a statue of saint peter and he's got this toe at the bottom of the statue where people go on pilgrim pilgrimage and they kiss the toe of peter and what's happened is they've actually completely kissed the toe off before and so they've had to hire a master sculptor to go re-sculpt the toe of peter so that people can keep coming and kissing the toe of peter now it's one thing to look at the statue and say well this is the apostle peter so of course we're going to give honor and homage to peter because he's this great character in the bible except for the fact that there's a sun disc on his head and it's like what's that doing there and if you actually go and google sun discs um 
you really find the origin of the sun disk is steeped in paganism. And so while they're calling this statue the statue of Peter, when the pagans come to church and they see this statue, they're not worshiping Peter. They're worshiping Jupiter. And so it became this very convenient thing to be able to say, you know what? We are not going to tell people to abstain from idolatry. Let's just wipe it out from the commandments. And that's basically the shift that's starting to happen. And so what we see happening is that there's this, these steps that are taken down that leave biblical Christianity and it morphs into this different organization that becomes more about control and politics and power as opposed to glorifying God. And so we see that the church becomes organized, religion and politics unite, Christianity replaces its teachings of the Bible with the practices of culture. The word of God loses its prominence in the church and power and influence become a greater priority rather than faithfulness to God. So for over a thousand years, the church would go through something called the dark ages. And to give an illustration and to put this power of the church into context, I'm just going to do some trivia with you guys. Do you know who is, who is the head of state in Australia? And, and I took the, uh, the, the Australian citizenship test a little bit ago, so this was a bit of uh, interesting information for me. But who's the head of state in Australia? All right, I heard it. The queen or the British monarchy. Now, who coronates the queen or the monarchy to give legitimacy to the monarchy's power? Yeah, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Isn't that interesting? There is a priest somewhere who bestows the power of the monarchy to the monarchy. And without that blessing, they are not considered the royal family or they are not considered the queen or the king. That is crazy to me. And that, that tradition um, still is followed today. Now, I, I want to highlight today it's more of a tradition, right? They do it because it's, it was just done in the past. But if you actually read history, it was a legitimate thing back in the day. And there's this massive power play that took place between the royal family and the Archbishop of Canterbury. And there was a period of time where the monarchy had to ask the, 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 um, the clergy, please give us your blessing because without it, the people are not going to listen to us. Right? It was a legitimate thing back in the day. And so historically, um, the church had this incredible political power. Um, and in a lot of ways, it still does today because if you think about the Christian lobby, it's a very significant thing in Australia and even more so in America. So another problem that led to this downfall was that the Bible was written in Latin at the time. And that means only the educated could read and understand scripture. Only the clergy could read and understand scripture. And so this meant whenever somebody wanted to know what is God's will, the church held sole authority in terms of what that actually meant or what that will was. And so those who would not submit to the authority of the church were rejected or persecuted. And the church could basically say whatever it wanted. <clears throat> so what would bring about restoration? And it's at this time where the common people start realizing, hey, the church is supposed to be this organization that upholds holiness and upholds the will of God. But instead, they're kind of using it for themselves. And so there was a change or a reformation that started taking place. And today we look back at that change and we call it the Protestant Reformation. 
So here's a little bit. Here's some highlights of some of the groups and some of the people that really led to reformation, led to change, and led to where the church is today. So in 1173, there's a man named Peter Waldo who founded a group called the Waldenses. And they really believed in the Bible as a sole authority of faith. And what they did was they dedicated themselves to familiarizing themselves with Scripture. Um, And they decided we're going to follow what Scripture says as opposed to what man says. They knew that what was being taught in church wasn't truth. And so what was the result? They were persecuted, and many of them fled to the French Alps. They memorized huge portions of Scripture. They would line their children up, and they would kind of say, you're going to memorize the book of Luke. You're going to memorize the book of Matthew. You're going to memorize the book of John, and so forth, until they, they could recite and put together the Bible completely from memory. Incredible group of people. They hand-wrote copies of Scripture in known languages, and what they would do is they would go into the cities as street peddlers, people who would sell food, baking goods, pots and pans, and they would sew hidden pockets into their clothing, into their jackets, where they would hide portions of Scripture. And basically, as they would get to know people in the cities, they would inquire, is there anyone who wants to learn about the truth? And if they met somebody, then they would bring out the Scripture and they would share it with people. So the Bible from the Waldenses became a prominent thing, and Scripture was once again uh, raised to the importance that it actually is. A reformation or a change in Christianity was beginning, and uh, it became a time when people started studying Scripture. Now, Waldensian congregations continue to be active today, even in Europe, South America, and North America. The next individual that I'd like to highlight is a man by the name of John Huss. He also brought about change. John Huss was a Catholic priest who lived in Prague, and he began studying the Bible, and he declared, obedience to God is my motto, not obedience to man. And what happened to Huss as a result of taking a stand by saying, listen, I'm going to obey Scripture Huss was burnt at the stake in Prague, in the Prague town square by the church, and Huss's teachings on obedience to God were carried, for, uh, were carried forward by others who saw him die for his faith, and they made a decision, we're going to do the same. Obedience became, became something that was highlighted by these group who were called the Hussites. Um, they were also called the Moravians or the Bohemian Brethren. The third individual that I'd like to highlight is a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is arguably one of the most well-known Protestant reformers. He is a German Catholic priest who really wrestled with this idea of guilt and penance. He was alive during a time where the church was selling something called indulgences. And uh, the Pope of the time was trying to build uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And... Um, there's this massive structure, but the question is, how are they going to raise funds for it? Well, easy. You sell forgiveness to people. And I think one of the, uh, the church knew the thing that people really struggle with or fear is death. They fear death for themselves. They fear death for their loved ones. And so if there is a way that you could limit your time in purgatory and hell and send a loved one straight to heaven, or if there's a way that you could limit your own time in purgatory or hell, then how great would that be? And the church came up with this wonderful idea of selling forgiveness. 
while Martin Luther was dealing with his own guilt and as he saw what the indulgences were doing in the communities around him, he made this uh, concerted effort. I want to understand how salvation actually takes place. His desire for personal peace led him to different verses like Romans 117, which says the just shall live by faith. His desire to learn truth led him to verses like Ephesians 2.8, which says, For it is by grace that you have been saved. It also led him to verses like Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so he started preaching and teaching the gospel as a means of experiencing salvation. And this was very contrary to the teachings of the church. And the church uh, really responded. They tried uh, even murdering him, and he had to go into hiding. And in his time of hiding, he translated the Bible into German. And this was very important because during that time, the Gutenberg printing press was invented. And for the first time in history, the Bible could be mass-produced and passed out to the hands of the common people. And for the first time, multitudes of people could read Scripture in their own language and understand it. And once again, it gave people access to the Bible. And so the third thing that's added is this idea of being saved by grace. And there's a slow restoration process that starts taking place. The fourth person I'd like to talk about is John Calvin, and he became an influential reformer after Martin Luther. He emphasized the moral and ethical behavior of government to be based on Christian principles. He saw that even though the government was Christian, they weren't living by their faith, and so he really, really tried to reach um, the political uh, powers that be, and he was communicating to them, it's really important that if you're taking the name of Christ, you should live like a Christian. He also really asked and tried to reform the church by separating church and state, and he was one of the first people to actually go into um, a country and say, let's, get, let's take the church outside of the workings of politics, and this is a very significant step. So John Calvin really highlighted morality, and thus the Reformed Church or the Presbyterian Church was birthed. The fifth group of people that I like to highlight are the Anabaptists. They studied the Bible and rediscovered the importance of baptism by immersion. At this point in time, there was a common practice uh, where priests would sprinkle uh, babies and baptize them uh, by sprinkling. And the Anabaptists, as they studied scripture, realized the Bible teaches baptism by immersion. We're going to be talking about this in the next session. But baptism became an important truth that was uh, revitalized through this uh, Protestant Reformation, and today they're known as the Baptist Church. So during this time, there was a forming of new denominations. As different political leaders were watching different churches kind of separate themselves from the church, uh, these political leaders began to gain a bit more confidence, and they decided, you know what, we should start churches of our own. And here comes the entrance of the Anglican Church. So King Henry VIII in England wanted to divorce his wife, and so he went to the Pope at the time, and he said, I would like a blessing of divorce, and I would also like to remarry. The Pope wouldn't give him that blessing, and so King Henry VIII decided, I'm going to make my own church, which is now the Eng Anglican Church or the Church of England. John Wesley was a theologian inside of the Anglican Church in the 18th century, and uh, John and his brother Calvin started this group of people that were really emphasizing the importance of holiness. 
They realized a lot of people were going to church, but it didn't seem to really change their hearts. It didn't seem to change their minds. And so they were just saying, we want to be different. And so they started a club called the Holy Club. And that, that was actually the name of the club. And they would meet every single week, and the Holy Club would gather together, and they would sing songs together, and they would live holy lives. Imagine marketing that name today. <laughs> Join the Holy Church. <laughs> I'm sure people would come in by the, come in by the crowds. <laughs> so holiness was highlighted. After he and his brothers passed away, the group of followers that remained called themselves Methodists. And what we're seeing here is the forming of different Christian denominations. And I've just highlighted the beginnings of some of the well-known Christian denominations. And the reality is, as you look into the teachings of these different individuals, whether it's uh, John Calvin, whether it's Anabaptists, whether it's um, Martin Luther, or whether it's John Huss, um, you'll find that there's actually... Um, a lot of difference between what those different individuals and what those different te- uh, different churches actually teach. Um, and so what we find is that there's this difference or this fragmentation that's happening within the church. But much of the Reformation, it was about breaking free from the centralized power. They weren't really fighting each other as they were fighting a system. <clears throat> so back to that question, why are there so many Christian churches today? Well, number one, Christians don't agree with each other as the Bible is complex and it takes thoughtful study. And as we can see that there were changes that were happening throughout history, people really had these convictions where they felt God is speaking to me and I'm learning this new truth and other people weren't ready to agree with them. And so you would have these new groups that would form. Secondarily, history shows that unity leads to control and the churches didn't want to be controlled. And you know, there's kind of this movement that's going um, going on. It's uh, ecumenism, where the churches are saying, "Hey, we all believe in Jesus. Let's start that dialogue and let's kind of um, work through our differences." And they're not saying, "Let's be one." What they're saying is, "You believe in what you believe. I believe in what I believe. But let's just learn how to get together." Because in the past, we didn't always get along. And so, in the past. Uh, the past communicates even to the present where there's kind of this hesitancy to say, let's just all take the same name. Because in the past, there was unity, and then there was corruption as a result of it. Finally, throughout history, politics has also played a role in the formation of specific denominations. And what we see is different political leaders wanting autonomy and wanting individuality um, would take advantage of the the the... Uh, religio-political landscape, and hence we have different Christian uh, denominations. You know, I can probably safely say that the Protestant Reformation was a single greatest event that happened in the world that completely changed the trajectory of of, of Earth's history. And so um, you really see, of course, as a result of the Protestant um, Reformation, we would have different denominations. We We would have different groups of people that believe different things. See, people naturally do things that suit their own purposes and understanding, and this fragments Christianity, but it has also led to the development of theology within Christianity. There's one more individual that I'd like to highlight today. So we've talked about the beginnings of the Bible, of obedience, grace, morality, baptism, and holiness. Finally, there's a gentleman by the name of William Miller. 
in the late 18th century, there was a Baptist farmer in North America. He began studying prophecies relating to the second coming of Christ. And as he began sharing what he was learning, this led to this revival that took place throughout North America. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, um, all different kinds of evangelical churches began gathering together in these meetings, and they would study the Bible together. And when I say that they would gather together, they would take weeks on end, like one, two, three weeks, and they would um, gather themselves into these uh, buildings, and they would just study and pray through Scripture. And they would just ask, hey, what does the Bible actually say about this? And this revival really sparked this desire to understand truth. And as a result, this revival took place, and people came to the knowledge of the second coming of Christ and also to the importance of the Ten Commandments, in particular, the Seventh-day Sabbath. In Revelation chapter 14, one, uh, 14, verses 1 and 4, the Bible talks about a group of people at the end times who have this specific characteristic. And I'd like to read this passage with you. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And notice here, the characteristic, it doesn't name a specific church. It doesn't say these are the people who belong to the Baptist church or the Presbyterian church or the Seventh-day Adventist church. What it does highlight is a group of people who are saying, Jesus I just want to know who you are, and I'll follow you wherever you take me. And so the characteristic that's defined to this group of people are people who are just unwaveringly dedicated to Christ. So with that, I bring you back to the staircase. Each of these truths are in Scripture, and they're important, and each teaching gives clarity to who God is. And so as you, are seeking for, as you are seeking to follow Jesus, as you come across one or two or 10 or 20 of the 1,100 churches that are in Australia, naturally you're going to ask the question, God, where do you want me to go? And I would encourage you to, like the Waldensians, uphold scripture. That you would, like John Huss, uphold obedience. Like Martin Luther, uphold grace. Like John Wesley, uphold morality, like the Anabaptists, uphold baptism, like John Calvin, uphold holiness, like the Seventh-day Adventists, uphold the ideas of the second coming and the Sabbath. And as you follow Jesus, may you come to a knowledge of who God is, and may the different lenses that are put in place give you a picture of the love of God. Uh, may God bless you as you prayerfully uh, consider the different teachings of Scripture. God bless you. Um, Please join me for a closing word of prayer, and then we'll um, have a short break and refreshments. Father God, we come before you today, and I just want to ask that as we consider um, the incredible sacrifices that have been made by people, the diligence of study that have uh, been made by individuals to bring about massive change and massive reformation so that we could understand you, I pray that you would inspire in our hearts a desire to do the same, to study your word, to know you, uh, to know your heart, and to be filled with that passion to be able to share that with those around us. Um, as we consider these things, Father, may we be just 
convicted of your presence. Uh, may we feel you with us, guiding us and leading us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.